welcome to the Undercut Podcast. I'm your host, Ellie Mae Taylor, and with so much news in recent weeks outside of Formula One, we thought it'd be best to tackle it in an entirely separate podcast episode away from our Formula One Qatar Grand Prix preview. Joining me as ever are my two co-hosts, Jesse Billington and Timo Alves-Daily. How are you both? I'm exhausted. It's been like, I feel like I've been flat out since Suzuka wrapped really with Suzuka review and then so much work on the side of it. This morning I managed to fit in a double feature drive with photo shoot and then I've been literally sort of tippity tapping away at my desk working on getting one of them turned around for the end of tomorrow. So absolutely crackers. Um, this is also our first recording of October and also the last recording we'll do before I turn 26. So yeah, a lot of weird milestones we've hit. So fun times. On the other hand, I'm very awake and very active and full of energy. So I'm looking to kind of balance this whole podcast out a bit because you're probably in that middle ground, Ellie May, or probably not. You're probably very tired, are you? I feel like death. I'm not low yeah, on energy. I'm I'm sort of tired, but I've got boundless reserves of energy. I'm just sort of more physically exhausted. But you're the one weirdly in between there. Ellie May's just dying slowly in the corner. So that's yeah. pretty business as usual. Yeah, it seems about right. So we'll kick off with our usual set news section, which but just sort of jumbo-sized, which is always what the hell has happened. And finally, some actually fantastic news from the world of women in motorsport, Timo. Yeah, and that's because Jessica Hawkins has completed an F1 test for Aston Martin in Hungary. And it's something she's had to keep under wraps for quite a while, mainly because I'm thinking you don't want to jinx that, if nothing else, and say that you're going to do this and then it, the bottom falls out of it at just the last minute. So it was great to see that she finally got to do it. She got covered 26 laps and shared driving duties with Felipe Drogovic. And reports from the team state that she was quick to get up to speed and hit the target times in the car despite the drying track because obviously she had to deal with mixed conditions straight off the bat. Um, so, I mean, yeah, knowing the times is completely relevant as we're two months on or so-ish from when F1 raced in Budapest. But at the same time, it's interesting that she was able to still hit all the targets that were set for her given the mixed conditions and that the car is several years old and on a totally different spec of tyre to what's run currently. Um, and it's interesting that we're wondering who's going to be doing what next with bringing women closer to getting into a Formula One car properly. And I'm not surprised that it's Aston Martin, but I'm also surprised it's Aston Martin, if that makes sense, because they seem like the less organised when it comes to that side of things and don't seem to have, like, we know that Jess Hawkins has been there for a while, but we thought that that was more of an ambassadorial thing rather than actually getting to do something like this. So it's nice to, it's a surprise to be sure, but a welcome one. And it's been a while since this happened last because it was only Tatiana Calderon for Sauber back in 2018 in Mexico when this last happened. There was a second test in 2019, but that was still a good few years ago at this point. And it's ridiculous that it's taken this long. And then it's for, for Aston Martin, a team that technically weren't on the grid then. Um, so great news, though, for Jess Hawkins. And she must be over the moon about it. I mean, you've got to go drive for an F1 car around the Hungara ring. It's a good little circuit to drive around. And obviously in that spec, that car did get a podium at the Hungara ring as well. So it's um, a car that... Technically, yes. Technically, yes. Um, but with a lot of technicalities 
to throw into it, even getting the podium. I think it then did get the podium taken away or something, or was that Budapest? Or was yeah, that Azerbaijan? Insufficient fuel sample by Sebastian Vettel, I think, which ruined everyone's day. <laughs> yeah, but regardless, the fact is she's 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 earned the fact to get there. I think when you look back at her last mm. series in W Series as well, she was ruthlessly quick and at the pointy end of the season for much of the time. She is a phenomenal driver, and yeah, very well earned and well deserved drive. If you look at it from the test, she and then look at the season W Series, it was one where she built up to where. She she was going towards and it's nice to see that that's just her style drive sometimes you see drivers straight off the bat with it sometimes they just come in very last minute but this one there was a very notable progression and it's great to see that I mean 26 laps isn't a lot in the grand scheme of things so to do that and have that kind of meeting the target perfect yeah I think it's everyone always goes oh well if she's done so well show us the times like the times are genuinely irrelevant because so much has changed since that car was last run around that circuit, since we last ran an F1 you know, car around that circuit. See the times I just wanted to compare them to this year's qualifying times in different cars, different conditions, different tyres, and just have yeah. it as another excuse to try and bombard them with a bunch of crap that we don't need from people. They just want to put her times up against the fastest qualifying lap that Fernando Alonso set in a completely different style of car, and I think it's completely irrelevant. But yeah, I mean, the last time we had a female driver in FP1 would have been Susie Wolf for Williams, yeah. Back in 2014, I want to say off the top of my head, possibly as far back as that. So it's been getting on for a decade since we've had a woman in FP1. But do we think that might change later this year? If we've seen these promising signs from Jess now, do we think there's a chance that possibly Abu and Abu Dhabi, uh, Brazil, and Mexico will see will see that sort of nearly decade long duck get broken? It depends who it is because there's not really that many female drivers on the payrolls for F1 teams to be doing that the closest you'd have is an F3 or an F1 Academy driver and I don't know if you put them into an F1 card this soon because then you will see the times and it might not be fair to do that to them because it's such a different piece of machinery to what they're used to driving um, unless you just bring in someone like Jamie just for the sake of it and stick her in a Williams in Abu Dhabi I mean I won't be against that at all but aside from that anyway I'm not sure who else there would be yeah, in yeah, in all honesty, I I don't know. It's kind of do I think much will come out of it right now, and we, we will we see those sort of leaps of more women drivers stepping into reserve or test driver roles or having free practice sessions within Formula One? Maybe not right away. I mean, this isn't to say that is it. This isn't a positive. This has hopefully cemented Jess's role within Aston Martin and it's potentially providing perhaps in the future a free practice session for her. And But it is ultimately providing, I guess, more coverage of women in motorsport and creating more role models to a younger generation who find they might want to be in motorsport. You know, like you said, we do have sort of the wonderful cohort of female drivers in F1 Academy and Hopefully, there will be opportunities for them within Formula One and in the future. I'm not sure they will have it sort of immediately, but as well, sort of the amalgamation of that. Hopefully, it's all just sparked more younger girls' interests into sort of karting so that they will end up maybe being the first women to have a sort of full-time seat in F1 that competes in a full season as well. and. I guess the bigger picture is we want to see more women drivers trying to get into Formula One and this is a step in the right direction. It's just going to be a slow one. 
I mean, there is opportunity for some more steps in the right directions to happen because Formula 3 teams are currently sort of lining up their sort of post-season tests, which are happening over in, I want to say, Valencia. Um, and I, I've seen that... Sophia um, Fursh has been signed by Fanning Sport Racing for that one, which is not the usual team of PHM. So even if it's just for testing, it's nice to see that interest there and mm. potential movement into a slightly better, better team. team. That was what my, my initial thought was, ooh, a better team will see a more relative performance, possibly a step forward in the right direction. And equally, there is a bit of a gap at the moment for um, F1 Academy. So there is a chance of potentially some of the drivers from that to go and dip their toe in Formula 3. It is just a test session, but it would be interesting to see. I think I'm right in saying that Abby Pulling did one last year. Um in F3. Uh, so it's not unheard of for sort of drivers from a couple of other series to crop up in this F3 test. So it'd be... It'd be we did have a couple of W series drivers, I think the year before, get an F3 test off the back of just doing well in, in W series at that time. Yeah. So it's there's a precedent for it. And I think just going off what you were saying earlier as well, I think part of it would be down to where does this go from here is even if Jess Hawkins doesn't make it to F1, it's good to just be able to see it there as a possibility and like you say be an inspiration and kind of just help open that door a bit more i mean you've got f1 academy driver megan gilks is just completed an internship with aston martin in the engineering department so even if she decides she doesn't want to do racing anymore there's potential for her in that way and that's another kind of spotlighting that you can do one or the other or both because in theory there'd be enough time for it if they were flexible and kind enough for it and Mastermind probably have the resources to make that if they wanted to so it's interesting to see the different approaches they're taking there yeah it's definitely just trying to provide more coverage and more opportunities because it's whilst you want a woman to be in sort of formula one or sort of sort of being near around it the sad reality is, is that it's probably going to be those that are karting now that are probably going to be the ones that are in perhaps a Formula One seat because just for the sheer amount of men or boys that are in sort of motorsport now, it's a much higher proportion than females. So there's more probability that it is going to be a male. And is that when I did the um when I helped out with FIA girls on school, you know, we did a um mixture of sort of activities of sort of being like driver um reaction testing and um sort of pit stop challenges. Obviously I did the media side of it and there's also an engineering side of it. But before that we had a hundred or close to one hundred girls in a room and I think one of the questions was like how much do you know about motorsport or like do any of you know about motorsport and I don't even think maybe one maybe that put their hand up and knew really about motorsport so it is sort of trying to get those role models out and sort of promoting it to more females so that they know that this is accessible to them. Mm. And on the same note of that, we've finally got uh, some coverage for F1 Academy at the final round in Texas. I mean, for UK viewers, it'll be on Sky Sports, as is probably expected. And if you're listening to us outside the UK, you can head over to the F1 Academy website to find out where you can watch it. 
and probably expect all of those places to do the same for 2024. Nice that we finally get it. Annoying that we have to wait until the last round of the season when the cameras and the commentary and the presenting was all set up anyway for the highlight show, so we could have just seen it anyway. But at least, like you say, anyway, it's a step in the right direction and just getting it out there and hopefully just exposing more more women to it and showing that it's it's out there and it's pursuable. I think with F1 Academy, it was very much the double-edged sword of show us the racing, but equally at the same time, they were reluctant to because there was going to be teething issues with a brand new series. The last thing you want to do when it's going to be on the added scrutiny of, oh, it's women drivers. You don't want to be putting problems that extend beyond the drivers on show in that greater sort of level of sort of attention. And you want to get that. I think if you did it the right way, then you could spin it out and you could own that. And I think they should have taken the risk with it, to be honest, because there's enough appetite for it and you're going to get some shit for it, regardless from the same kind of people who will complain even when it is on and it is better than it was at the start of it. So I think in the long run, it's probably not going to make too much difference. But as it doesn't make too much difference, why not just show it to begin with? I think ultimately they played the safe bet. And I think given how much they're dealing with and equally the possible impact it could have, I think the safe bet is ultimately going to have been the wiser move to make. I would have liked to have seen it earlier on. I'm very much with you on the grounds of it. It would have been fantastic to have given it that big platform to start with. But in the grand scheme of things... It seems a bit of a, like you say, double-edged sword. Oh, we'll have this whole brand new series. We'll support it. Can we watch it? No, no, no. No, we're not brave enough for that. Yeah, We'll wait a bit. We want to make sure that it works and we don't want to jeopardise a huge amount of fresh female careers in motorsport for it to not work and that to be seen on a grand scale of things. At least that way, if it does go completely pear-shaped, you've at least got a lot more damage control scope. Either way, it's it's coming that to the It feels like things. F1 covering its own ass rather than the drivers, but we can move yeah, on. It, it's not the it's F1 covering its own ass for something going wrong, but equally it stops that immediately being blamed on the drivers. It only takes one significant mechanical failure on a brand new spec of cars going into the first turn of the first Ooh. race of a but season. But I think at the same time, those people who'd be criticising that would be the same people who'd be criticising it regardless of what it is anyway. So the people who would know that, oh, a mechanical fault on the car you don't really blame the driver for that you should know whereas the people who are just going to say oh look the car's running down to a crap series oh x y and z yeah i think there's a gray area that at least in this instance they've been able to mitigate they've been able to sort of take some of that out of it i don't think you're going to be able to win every fan over with that sort of mentality and i appreciate there's still going to be some people that try and detract from what the series has achieved but by sort of taking focus on where there's going to be this sort of shifting fan base and focusing on winning some swing seats, essentially. That's arguably going to work in their favour. We'll wait and see what happens post-Texas. But um, speaking of America... Um, Andretti's Formula One team has been approved by the FIA, which is a big first step, actually, in the right direction. The process now goes on to Formula One and Formula One media for commercial discussions. This all comes down to whether Formula One actually wants them to race. But as far as the FIA are concerned, when it comes to safety and the legitimacy of the team, they have no worries about the team and say, no, clearly 
Um, Michael Andretti knows exactly what he's doing when he's putting together this team, but he knows that what he's putting forward is going to be a team that is on the spotlight of the foremost racing formula in the world. So the FIA agrees, Formula One, Formula One media are now in discussions with it. Um, the FIA president, Mohammed Ben Salim, said the process to select the team had been very thorough, which is why it took so long. Andretti Formula Racing LLC was the only entity which fulfills the selection criteria that was set in all the material respects. He said, I congratulate Michael Andretti and his team on a thorough submission. I also want to thank all prospective teams for their interest and participation. The expressions of interest process builds on the positive acceptance of the FIA's 2026 F1 power unit regulations among existing OEMs, which has attracted further a commitment from Audi, Honda and Ford and interest from Porsche and General Motors. General Motors, I think, is still very much the sort of hot shoe to be the engine supplier for Andretti when they arrive in the sports. So it'll be interesting to see that happen. Uh, I think it's likely going to come from your yeah, GM and ultimately I think it's going to be branded as a Cadillac engine to align with their WEC and IMSA racing where obviously Cadillac runs in that series. Interestingly, there's been not necessarily backlash, but sort of a thought of response from David Dicker, the founder of Roadnow Sports Cars. And uh, he is very annoyed with this, believing that they had a better bid in the uh, sort of the team's race and reportedly had a seat for a female driver lined up. And this was touted to be Jamie Chadwick, whether this is true. I don't know if it was a better um, bid, but it was definitely from the details that we've got a very interesting one. And I be very interested to see. I mean, I don't think we're going to find out anytime soon, but I'd be very interested to know why they were turned down because on paper from what, again, from what we've seen, it looked very appealing in a lot of different ways. And it's, it, I'd be pissed too if I were him. Yeah. And, it, and if, if, if it is as above board as, as he claims it to be, then I'd be very interested to know about what that's all about. Mm, it'd be, or is it just F1 looking to make that 12th spot even more expensive to someone else who's coming along and they're just doing a Mr. Krabs and I like money maybe not necessarily more expensive but certainly more sort of sought after and sort of go no you're going that to goes hand in hand though with the money yeah possibly hand in hand with the money but equally it sort of adds that extra competitive edge it's all about the spectacle it means that there's going to be this sort of hotted up competition to get that other seat and we'll see how it pans out but they've already released um, I say they I mean um, Andretti have already released their, sort of some details of their technical team and uh, they've been in place for nearly a year in Banbury so they're sort of based in very much the British motorsport heartlands. You've obviously got uh, Alpine and Mercedes aren't too far away. Neither is Aston Martin and Red Bull. So they've got Nick Chester, who will be their technical director, and he has form at Renault Formula One and Mercedes Formula E team. Uh, John McWilliam is going to be the chief designer for the team, and he's previously worked at Jordan Manor and ProDrive Composites. Um, if you've not heard of ProDrive Composites, worth looking up. They have been behind the scenes on most of the major rally sport projects um, across the globe and a huge amount of other projects besides so when it comes to actually sort of manufacturing and making sports cars and racing cars pro driver a very good team to have or very good knowledge base to be able to source from the last on their list at the moment is john tomlinson who is the head of aero uh, formerly of jordan but also previously at renault williams and mercedes so again a good talent pool to pick from and um some un relatively unknown names for possibly the vast majority of you, unless you are proper sort of backbench sort of Formula One knowledgeisters who know the names and addresses of every person to have ever worked at any team ever. Um, so yeah, it's it's a a good standing for Andretti coming into this with some good names from respectable teams and possibly an engine provider as well. The fact that FI the FIA has significantly sort of gone 
yes, we like you. And that can often mean a lot more in Formula One than people give kudos to. So the question that I have for the two of you is, do you think they'll make it? Yes, I do. I think this clearly isn't just a rough plan. Andretti have delivered a very serious and thorough plan to the FIA and now sort of Formula One. Going back to sort of what we were saying about Brodin, um, also wanting that spot on a couple of others, there was, you know, there was resistance from F1 teams about having a, an 11th team anyway. Probably 12 would have been too much for them to sort of cope with at the, at the moment. And they would have obviously looked at um, each um, prospective team and they, they must have just thought Andretti were better or or as well. I think it's probably in Formula One's interest to have Andretti um, in a way to sort of help them maintain and grow F1's popularity within sort of mainly America and I guess create some sort of hype within the sport as well. I think Andretti are the devil they know and they figured it's easier to bring them on board or hopefully think that it's easier to bring them on board rather than fair if one to turn around and say no after all of this because again, if they do, I'd love to know the reasoning behind it. Um, because it's just that they're too big to say no to. And in theory, that then buys them time to keep saying no to any potential 12th team. And you've got to be at least Andretti size, going back to what we were talking about before, Jesse, with, with Roden, even though there's a clear path way through the junior categories with Roden and then would be into Formula One, maybe that's just not good enough. And a lot of the teams probably just don't like the idea of sharing any more of the pie with anyone else anyway so it's I don't want to keep bringing it back to money but it seems to be driving a lot of the motivation for people saying yes or no on something like this and Andretti is just one of these Goliath names that you think well if we have to have anyone it might as well be them and I hope they say yes because I'd like an extra two seats and then I'd like another extra two seats on the grid because it should be more interesting and we need something to keep Formula 1 interesting at the moment because it needs it um, I just hope that Formula One doesn't turn around and say no after all this. So I think they will, but also I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't. Yeah, I think there's there's still a lot in the air as to how sort of not levied, but sort of jostled Formula One is by the teams as to whether or not they agree to the sort of arrival of another one. It depends who how sort of it does, it does well seem a peculiar thing. The, the, the last thing I'll say on it is the fact that. I can understand why a lot of the teams are resistant to Andretti coming in, but again, if you're looking at it from just Formula One perspective, you want that extra team in there because it brings you more jeopardy, brings you more spectacle, and you've got the potential of this big American team coming in and being able to take on the big boys at their own game in what has been a very close chop for a long time. Um, and you can see why the teams wouldn't like that, but you think, well, then... Oh, just deal with it. Get get your big pants on and just embrace the challenge. You've got one new team coming in. If you're as good as you say you are, you shouldn't have any trouble beating them. So deal with it. Yeah, yeah the ultimate argument for the F1 teams here is simply just do better. If you're that hmm. scared, do better. Like, and if if the F1 teams are worried about this, if anything, it's prob a smart director of Formula One is going to go, oh, you think they're going to come in and be a threat and provide an interesting season. 
Well, given the news that's come out recently, on camera so I can stick it on Drive to Survive, and then we can make a whole big deal after that. Yeah, but also if they think there's going to be a sort of a threat of them coming in and being really good, um, you've also got this sort of concept of oh, that would spice up the season and bring back a fan base mm. which we seem to have lost. Which I know is something that we'll spices touch on. everything up on and off track. Mm. We'll touch on the, that last um, point in a second. I am currently wearing an Andretti top. So. Are you? Oh, oh, the Formula E one. She says. Yeah pulling up her jumper so we can see her t-shirt beneath um in other news subscribe to our patreon we'll put that up there for you for free yeah yeah do it it's literally a pound a month and it means that we can maybe buy a microphone um in other news i'm worth to one person but to an amassed amount of people you could be worth more it depends on the market's demand. Um, in other news from America, Roman Grosjean has commenced an arbitration procedure against Andretti Autosport following the termination of his contract with the team and that contract not being fulfilled. Um, I think at the end of the day, my sort of line on this is, sucks to be you, go cry in your Lamborghini hypercar. Um, yeah, you've had a good stint in IndyCar, but you haven't been able to produce a win in the entire time you've been there. It took you a little while to get sort of settled into it. Oh, it's a big change from Formula One, especially off the back of that massive crash. You've done well. You've got podiums. You've sort of battled for championships, but ultimately you just don't seem to be cut out for the sort of very much cut and thrust of um, IndyCar. But you've you sort of got this Lamborghini deal sat on the table at the moment. I think it's signed. I think it's sort of ready to go stop moaning and go and do that unless you're really determined that what you want to do is somehow try and do the triple crown and sort of get your Indy 500, get your Le Mans and then find your way back to Formula One to get Monaco. It's it's an odd one for everyone. This is one of those things where it's, it, it's I'm just, I'm only going to take your side briefly, but it's very easy for you to say all that, but obviously priorities for someone in his position are very different and what, kind of stakes are high and what matters it's on a whole different level and it can seem a little bit oh why should you be moaning about this when you've got a perfectly good drive in a Lamborghini hypercar for next year sort of ready but it's a whole different ball game on a whole different level so it's I can understand why he'd be annoyed especially if he was under the impression and potentially and contractually on the team with them for next year why that suddenly changes um it did seem a little bit, um, the statement was an interesting one, just from a, oh, okay, that's popped up. It's uh, not usually what you see when a driver says they're no longer going to be with the team, but it is Grosjean at the end of the day. So it was always going to be slightly different, I suppose. Um, it would have been nice to see him win a race. Maybe he come back with someone else next year and go you know, and be fueled with vengeance and go against Andretti and we'll get some more spins from him accordingly for that. But it's uh, it's definitely interesting, but I think it's it's yeah, it's one of the things both sides. Of that. Yeah, he's still got a pretty nice lifestyle and everything, but I can understand why he would be pissed about all this at the same time. Yeah, I think they have mucked around on his contract as well, so I think you've, he's got a right to be annoyed about the whole system. I guess as well, he has the whole upheaval of the fact that he's moved his family from Europe to America to do this, mm-hmm. and now he's no longer got a seat but then that's up to him to do better i guess yeah that's the move you make as a motorsports driver is you if you go decide to go and drive in a series that's predominantly based in x location you're going to have to deal with that he's not nigel manson just going in there all guns blazing and being successful straight away no one can live up to nigel back in the old cart days no, no one can live up to our nigel 
Yeah. I mean, it could be worse. You could be Yuki Tsunoda or Liam Lawson and be forced to live in Milton Keynes. So at least he's sort of gotten to live in sunny climes of Florida. So it's not that bad. Talk about the 2026 tech rules, which are moving towards smaller cars. Yeah, finally, they might actually be listening. 190 centimetres wide, not 200 centimetres. Wheelbase will be down from 360 centimetres to 340 centimetres. It could have gone as low as 330, but apparently the team has pushed back on this. Uh, 30 kilograms of fuel will be used to charge the battery, but we're not entirely sure how that's going to happen because they've not really given us any details on that one. We'll get smaller wings, which will match us to the 40% reduction in topside produced downforce. Um, So kind of small changes, but... A step, as we were saying about previous topics, in the right direction. Safety implementations have necessitated bigger cars, so there's got to be the balance struck there. And in theory, overtaking will be easier, but we've heard that one before, so I'm not convinced of that until I see it. Um, so essentially the question is, do we think we'll see better racing for these rule changes? And my just two cents on that is, I bloody hope so, because we need it. I guess the thing that first came to my mind is that some of these changes are aero-based or they're going to affect the aero. And I think we saw with the new regulations that some teams struggled with this. And whilst these changes are nowhere near as significant as the changes we've just seen, um, Last year, I think apart from Red Bull, no team has really been on top of their aero package yet. So could this mean we actually see that these changes cause more unrest and struggles and see Red Bull perhaps gain an advantage because Asia Nui is the king of aero and he can sort of adapt to these changes whilst other teams are still trying to get used to the current cars? I think there's... There's every chance that, yeah, it's going to shuffle up. But if you've got a good engineering team behind you, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to put up a fight. When it comes to sort of providing better racing um, or easier overtaking, I think there's definitely something to be said for smaller, lighter cars. You've only got to look at things like Classic F1 or um, even Formula 2, Formula 3, where you've got these smaller, lighter cars that aren't quite so burdened with downforce to realise that, yeah, you do get a lot more jostling between a pack and you don't get quite the same field spread that results in sort of dull weekends, especially at bigger power-hungry circuits. But equally, things like Formula 2 around Monaco is an absolute firecracker of a gem to watch, as is the Monaco Historic, where you've got these tiny cars that are a little bit more nimble. You've only got to go back and look at, say, the old Schumacher qualifying lap around Suzuka and compare that to Max's qualifying lap from Suzuka last year. The racing line is so different because Max is having to work against the g-force acting on a significantly heavier car whereas when you look at michaels he's sort of straight lining a lot more he's not having to sort of run the car quite as wide through turns it looks visibly more dynamic and more exciting it's not necessarily a quicker lap because power difference downforce difference yada yada but at the end of the day the spectacle of racing will come back and equally it'll make the cars harder to drive which will sort of push for different competitions different styles of driving and different battles through the field Equally, a less technical car will open up the scope of the Formula 2 less mechanically or engineeringly endowed teams. So, yeah, it's great if you've got an Adrian Newey tucked away or the entire might of the Mercedes aero department. But if you're a smaller startup team like a Haas or a Williams running on 20-year-old CADCAM tech or maybe a new Andretti, a slightly simpler car to build could put you a lot closer to the running than people anticipate. 
Lando Norris has stated he's confident that McLaren will catch Aston Martin in the standings this season. A quote from him post-Suzuka was, I think our advantage at the minute compared to almost every team, bar a couple, is we have two drivers who are up there fighting for these positions and fighting for these points. Not every team has that at the minute. Uh, so I think that that's helping us. We can help one another, we can use one another, and I think that's a good advantage to have on this upward trend, which is certainly a loaded sentence when you said you might be able to beat Aston Martin in the standings this season, a team who many outlets this year have slated for having a very much a one-handed fight. Um, additional Lando news, he has now scored the most points of any driver before achieving a win, 543 career points. This surpasses Nico Hulkenberg, who amassed 530 with no win to date. However, in 98 races, Lando has scored 10 podiums, while Hulkenberg has done 200 races with nil. Um, so yeah, the fact that Lando's got to beyond Nico's points tally in not even half the races is actually, if anything, something to be celebrated more so than not having that win. Equally, more it won't be frustrating to get a win before him, though. It would be funny, I think. But um, McLaren have now gotten their wind tunnel online as well, which is uh, promising stuff, especially if they're moving up the fields. And equally, at the same time, Milton Keynes uh, City Council have uh, been in discussions with Red Bull Racing about development of their wind tunnel building, and uh, they've kicked up a bit of a fuss about it and uh, rather hampered development there. So not what you want if you're Adrian Newey. Very good news if you're Oscar Piastri fans. Adrian knew he can see air, though, so do they really need a wind tunnel? He, he sees in Flovis, that boy. Yeah. I like how we've gone from, can they sort of take fourth from Aston Martin to, do you think they could maybe get second? The, Second's have, a bit cheeky, but I think they, they could give ask. it a go. They could give it a go. But it's. Um, I did find it funny when F1 did put that post up on on their social media about oh who's going to get second place and McLaren was actually on the list. I'm like, That's ambitious even by your standards. But you can maybe get Martin, but I don't know. I mean, Ferrari would have to do a lot of cock ups, which again, not out of the realm of possibility. Um, but then Mercedes, you think they're always just they're lurking in the background and Lewis is hunting after P2 in the driver's standing. So I don't know. That's that's going to be a tall order, but it would be fun to see them try because if we're going to have to be subjected to the Red Bullness, keep keeping up with everything, we need to have something interesting going on in the background. So go for it, McLaren. It'll be uh, nice to see the end point being so much higher from where it was at the start of the year. And if you roll back 12 months, it's weird to say, can McLaren beat Aston Martin? Because you wouldn't have thought that would have been a problem. No. It, it's yeah, no. it's crazy to think at the start of the year. Well, McLaren even sort of at the bottom. P eighteen, P seventeen or something. Yeah, they were, they were terrible. Yeah, it was it was bad, yeah. bad. Like they were they were not making it. We were sleeting them a lot. We we were not being kind about their design and uh, but their and they listened to us good. and our tough loved worked. That, that is what we can assume. Perhaps I'll check some of the podcast data and see if there's any listeners in and around the Woking area and uh, go from they there. It won't be as simple as that to get caught that easily. They'll be doing it strategically listening to this podcast. They'll, have They'll be somewhere like VPNs. the Mediterranean or the Caribbean somewhere, somewhere exotic that we won't be expecting them to be. It'll be a photocopy shop near Woking, won't it? They're all sat in there listening, taking notes. Um, that's as, a, not that's a, Red Bull were... They were at the bottom of the constructors last year and won it. 
Yeah, that is very true. They they started with nil point for the opening race and then came back a long way. <laughs> Technically, everyone started with nil point at the end of the, with the okay, opening well, race. After, 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 after the race, they had nil point. Let's not be facetious. Um, speaking of being at the bottom so or vice versa, top of some standings. Uh, the World Destructors standings post-Japan make for some interesting reading. The records are being kept by Reddit user BassPro24 Chevy and give an interesting view as to which driver has been the most expensive this season. Logan Sargent unsurprisingly leads at the moment with a total damage cost of $3,906,000. Uh, Stroll is in second place with $2,609,000. And Perez is in... And Perez is in third on $2,459,000. So it's all very much still to play for there. Is, is that uh, damage to Perez's Red Bull or damage to other cars? I believe it is just damage to a car bearing the number 11. I don't think it extends to other vehicles, in which case I should think Checo will be a lot higher up that list, especially given his antics in Suzuka and Singapore. Uh, previous losers from this championship, or winners, depending on how you look at this, are Alex Albon in 2019, who cost $5,414,000. Uh, 2020s was Grosjean on $3,089,000 thousand dollars and 21 and 22 were schumacher on four million nine hundred forty nine thousand and three million nine hundred fifty two thousand respectively didn't quite make the five million cut in 2021 sadly um but yeah, this only really takes into account damage afflicted to their car. If you add in other cars, like I said, I think Checo will probably rack up a little bit higher up that list, given his uh, reputation over the past two races, at least, for just simply punting other drivers off when he can't be bothered to try and make a proper overtake, just dives up the inside. However, this does open up an interesting piece of discussion. When it comes to Checo, though, he has the same points share as George does at Mercedes, but no one is baying for Russell's blood are we, and I say we as the media in general, beyond the podcast, being too harsh on Sergio? No. When you I say don't points. When you look at the percentage point share across the teams, um, Russell has contributed the same percentage points to Mercedes that Sergio has to Red Bull. Let me see, what's the question then? Um, being too, no, we're not being too harsh on Sergio. There you go. No, I don't. I don't think we are either. He has the best car on the grid, and he's not consistently producing good results. I think it was a very accurate picture I saw. Um, that meme of everyone standing around the cake with a knife to cut into it, and there's famously the one guy who doesn't even have a knife in his hands, isn't even touching the cake, and it was everyone who contributed to Red Bull's constructor standings, and he was the one without the knife or touching the cake, and it did seem pretty accurate because, like you say, anyway, he does have the best car on the grid. He's not a bad driver by any stretch of the imagination. Red Bull wouldn't have taken him if he was crap. They were trying to definitely avoid bad drivers at that point of the game. Um, so, And George is in a car that is definitely not championship worthy and he's got Lewis freaking Hamilton as a teammate. So that's going to be a bit tricky to beat even when he's at his lowest. So no, not too harsh. Yeah, I'll admit it's an interesting way to portray the data to get a result that potentially Sergio Perez fans might be after. Um, but it, it's an interesting one to spark discussion, an interesting way of framing the argument, certainly. Um, but speaking of drivers for Red Bull-based teams... Yeah, 
No surprise here, Liam Lawson is set once again to sit in for the slowly but surely recovering Daniel Ricciardo at this weekend's Qatar Grand Prix. Um, yeah, AlphaTauri, you could argue, is running out of time when it comes to getting Danny back in fit, but at the same time, I see he would probably come back for Texas, and it's a good way for him to come back on a lot of reasons and not just for the sequel of Horsey McCall's face. Um, Mexican Grand Prix does clash with the final round of Lucent's super... F- Super Formula season at Suzuka. So while he could do Texas, Mexico would be eh. Um, but I think as he could win the championship, and because there's still plenty of time for Ricardo to get better between now and Mexico, it would make sense to to get him to go there and just seal that championship up. And if anything, that helps him make an even stronger case for why someone, if not Red Bull, this coming year for 2024, someone else should decide to change their mind last minute and sign him instead. Um, so is it at the same time is it worth him sacrificing his season there for a team that hasn't held him in the strongest regard so I would I'd say no don't sacrifice it get another championship knocked up on your record and do your own thing because yeah Red Bull may come through for you but they also might not it's it's an interesting one really Um, I I think the general sort of plan is that Daniel will be back for Texas. I think there is there is little doubt in that. He's sort of, they they didn't want him to do Qatar because it's quite a physically demanding one. Um, he has been trying those sort of circuits out on the sim rig. So he has been sort of putting that force back through his wrists and getting back into the pattern. They just sort of said, Qatar is a sort of demanding one. We won't push it too early. We want you back and fit. Uh, we'll just give you that extra. There's a, a two weeks, isn't it? I think between um, races, so he'll yeah. sort of get Qatar out of the way. Another week of gentle recovery, and then he'll be sort of back up and fighting fit. So I don't it's think like, we'll see... America is a good place for him to come back in. Mexico, he did very well there last year in that awful McLaren. Then he's got a little bit of break to Brazil, which he's got a lot of experience around. Vegas is new for everyone, and then Abu Dhabi is just not too bad for everyone. And no one really minds too much if you don't do well there because it's the last one of the season. And let's face it, after this weekend, championship-wise, for Alfred Towery probably, and for most other people, it doesn't matter that much what happens because the main prizes are all taken away. I think Was what the question, is it worth him sacrificing, Lawson sacrificing his season? Uh, his season. Yeah, his super formula, formula season. Yeah. I think with the word sacrifice, you almost want to assume that that potentially means a bad outcome. But, but I, he could throw away winning it. He's but I don't, I don't think sacrifice in this case is a bad thing. I assume Formula One is where Lawson wants to end up. So regardless of any treatment he's had at Alpha Tauri, there's still other prospective employers within the sport that you're trying to impress. So really, I think... I don't think we've done enough should, to impress anyone else already, though. But Well, then carry on if you can, and then sacrifice in sort of... So you wouldn't necessarily be sacrificing. You'd be sacrificing Mexico, which if Danny Rick's not backed by Mexico, then there's something more wrong with him than letting on. I think. Because I don't. I mean, he could do Austin and just be Mexico is sacrificing because he wouldn't be in Suzuka then. So I think for the sake of one Grand Prix, yeah. Look, I'm just going to go here wrap up this title that I've been getting in the meantime when I've not been bossing it in Formula One over here, sitting in for Danny Ricardo. Then I think both compliments himself nicely for anyone who wants to sign him for next year but I think even if he doesn't 
um, never gets into Formula One, if he wants to join another series, what are they realistically going to look at? How well you've probably subbed in at Formula One. And even if he does sacrifice Super Formula, everyone or those that really matter, like a future boss, are going to look at super your Super Formula performance with the caveat that you were in Formula One and that's why perhaps you didn't win. It will always be taken into account and I don't think the sacrifice will hinder him in any way. I think it will promote him because he's having more experience in Formula One, which is where he inevitably wants to be. I think that's the thing. You've agree with got that. To... I just don't think that it's also something that's going to have to come up because, like I say, Ricardo should be back well in time for Mexico, so it shouldn't be an issue in the first place. No. We'll wait and see um, equally, but I think if he if he does sort of have to sacrifice it to sit in for the Mexican Grand Prix, which is a hell of a long way off at this point. Um, yeah, I think there is that that fact that anyone that would be looking to employ him in motorsport will look at his full career and realise that I think at the end of the day, he'll come second in the Super Formula, Super, Super Formula season if he does miss out on that final round. So he's still going to A, finish quite highly in it, B, have had a pretty rigorous season and C, have had that, Formula One experience that he missed out on Super Formula Four. So he's going to have a lot weighing in his favour. And like Ellie May said, the people looking to employ him in Formula One are going to be smart enough to look at the full picture. But um, speaking of. And they should have looked at the full picture a lot sooner, though, and hired him when he was before he even went off to DTM and everything else and should have signed him straight out of Formula Two. Quite possibly. However, speaking of things returning to Formula One, um, India and the Bud International Circuit might be on its way back. Yeah, they've just had the MotoGP over there and it's been quite successful. So that's obviously sparked a conversation about is F1 going to add India back onto the calendar and would we like to see it? I would not mind at all. It opens up a bit more of the world. It's a big market if you do it right. And yeah, no, I mean, Formula E was great there this year. I've got no qualms with it. I mean, I think we could sacrifice a few other places on the F1 calendar at the moment to make space for it because we need... We don't need as many races as we have on there. Um, but yeah, India, why not? I loved, I loved it when we had places like South Korea and India on there. And I think it opens up new markets a bit more. And I think even if you don't go there every year and you do it every other year and you have it on a rotation with somewhere else, that potentially makes it even better. So I'm all for it. Ellie May, what do you think? I guess it, you're then covering more of Asia rather like the only one you take out the ones sort of that are in the middle east the only ones you've got in the south of asia at the minute are singapore so you are sort of making it more of a world championship by covering asia's huge so i guess cover it better than having it all very smallly in the middle east mm-hmm. Equally, if we are starting off in the Middle East and then moving to Australia, it is pretty much on that sort of plumb line across the globe. So it makes a sort of logical stopping point to have it relatively early on in the season, um, just as it's getting into sort of the autumn because it's sort of Southern Hemisphere-ish. 
So we could see some possibly wet races early on in the year if we head to India early on in that sort of as F1 tries to make a sort of globally logistically sensible um, calendar that still has to start in the Middle East and then go to Australia. Um, India makes sense to sort of slot in there. It's feasible to put it that far up. It would then also bump us up to like a 25 race calendar. But I think that's something to be sort of dealt with, like Timo said, with the sort of rotating basis, put it against another circuit, maybe bring back a Seoul, bring back a Malaysia um, and see where we go from there. But yeah, it'd be, it'd be nice to see it make a return. And equally, the F1, no, the MotoGP had plenty of monkeys there. And I think it'd be quite fun to see Charles Leclerc encounter a monkey again. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, simply Google it. It's a very funny video. So that's based off of MotoGP and sort of diverging a bit more from Formula One to uh, the World Endurance Series, where there's one bit of speculative news, which is Sebastian Vettel has reportedly received an offer to join the World Endurance Series with uh, Jota, or is it Jota or Yota? I thought Yota, but I could be wrong. I'm going to go with Yota because it's a single T, so it seems more like a sort of soft consonant in the middle. Um, who run a Yota. Porsche in the series? It is. Timo has thought about it for long enough. Yeah. Um, and it's it's all conjecture and rumour at the moment, but with Wex's use of hybrid powertrains and a less intense calendar, it's a more fitting series for Seb, surely. So it'll be interesting to see if he does make the move there, but it's all very much rumour-based at this point in time. Um, but in more concrete world endurance news, Aston Martin are going endurance racing once more and will tackle the WEC and IMSA series with their Valkyrie AMR Pro. They'll be entering the 2025 seasons with a race prep version of their Valkyrie hypercar. It'll also be the first in the hypercar class that was a road car first, race car second. All others are very much a race car with no road relevance. 2024 sees Aston, 2025 rather, sees Aston Martin tackle the GT3 and GT4 classes with homologated challenges. And this means, no, they'll be doing GT3 and GT4 in 2024 and then building up to 2025, which will mean that they'll be the only manufacturer present in all forms of global endurance racing and Formula One unless Ferrari comes back as a manufacturer to GT3 and GT4. That has yet to be seen. The Valkyrie AMR Pro features a 6.5-litre Cosworth-built, naturally-aspirated V12, which in road-going form revs to 11,000 RPM, produces 1,000 horsepower. No word on what it will produce in race trim, but it's likely to be biblical. And the noise? It is outstanding. It ripped up the track at Goodwood's Festival of Speed this year and sounded unholy, very much the old-timey F1 V12 noise. No word yet on the drivers, uh, who, but we'll see who's announced. Um, an impressive turnaround for the whole project, really, given that at one point this seemed like a stalled concept. So the real question is, could we see Lance Stroll driving for it as he shuffles away from Formula 1 to focus on anything but Formula 1? And equally, the second question is... Make him anyone. Anyone. And equally, the main question of what other brands, marks or manufacturers would you like to see join the hypercar or GT classes? In terms of the first question, I mean, it's rumoured that Aston Martin will keep it a V12 in there. I'm not sure I want Lance Stroll driving such a beautiful car with a V12 in it. You already got to have a go on a DB5. It's already been terrible for anyone who likes nice cars to not be driven by someone called Lance Stroll. So I think we just bite the bullet at this point. Just, if it gets him out of F1, just let him go and do it. Yeah, 
in terms of other brands, I say let's get Ford back. Let's get Ford versus Ferrari again. Well, I mean, Ford. We have very different thought processes. Ford are kicking about in. I can't remember if it's GT3 or GT4 with their sort of dark horse Mustang sort of um, race car. So it's, they'll be kicking around there. I don't think we'll see them returning to the hypercar class, mainly because they're sort of winding back GT production at the moment as it is. That thing's been around since 2016. If we're doing it as in like a wishful thinking than Ford, maybe Bentley, they dip, obviously dip in and out. Perhaps mm. it'd be good for Alfa Romeo. I'd like to see Mercedes do it. I did Go back think- to the old Merck Salbers from like the 90s. They were some hot, hot mm. cars like the C12s. Just don't have um, Mark Webber. Mm, yeah, the CLK GTR LM1s mm. were famous for not staying on the tarmac. Um, transitioning. Like there we go. Larder doing, I don't think they've ever done endurance racing, but I think they definitely did rallying at one stage. Um, shuffling to a completely different racing series now and a dash of Formula E news as their silly season evolves. Formula E silly season this year has very much filled in for the fact that there wasn't one for F1. So at the end of July, Robin Freitz left Apt Cupra and Sam Bird left Jaguar, which freed up a few seats to start with. Nick Cassidy moved from Envision to Jaguar to replace Sam and partner Mitch Evans. This then also opened up a seat at Envision, which went to Freitz, so all neatly sorted there. Rene Rass left McLaren after a year and Sam Bird was announced as his replacement. Uh, Oliver Rowland then rejoined Nissan, booting out Norman Matto in the process and freeing up Mahindra receipt. Earlier in September, Andre Lotterer announced his departure from the sport entirely and Natta was snapped up to fill Lotterer's seat at Andretti. Maserati got shot of Eduardo Mortara um, who would who would move to Mahindra. At Mahindra, they would lose their reserve driver, Yehan Deruvla, as he moved to Maserati. Mahindra would then back, be back down to one driver with the announcement that Lucas Degrassi would be leaving them, but this was remedied by something Ellie May spied when she was at the season finale in London. Earlier this year, a recently kicked from F1 Nick DeVries chatting with the Mahindra team. So Nick now replaces Degrassi. Then once I've written all that, Abt Cooper assigns Lucas Degrassi and Nico Mueller. So the net result at the time of recording, no change for DS Penske, who retained Stoffel and Jev. Neo333 also see no change in their lineup with Sergio Setacamera and Dan Tictum. Abt Cooper keep Mueller and sign Degrassi. Neon McLaren have an all-Brit lineup with Hughes staying on and being joined by Bird. Maserati retain Maximilian Gunther and now have Jan Ruvula in their ranks. Mahindra have a totally new lineup of De Vries and Mortara. Jaguar will now be represented by an all-Kiwi lineup of Nick Cassidy and Mitch Evans. Probably makes sense to swap the Kiwi team of McLaren and Brit drivers for the British team of Jaguar and Kiwi drivers of uh, Nick Cassidy and Mitch Evans. Uh, the latter retained after last year. And Porsche haven't a clue who they'll run yet, uh, which rounds out the state of affairs at present. But it's all interesting stuff and equally ties in with Formula E's fan base hitting new highs across its most recent season. Are up 17% uh, to 344 million fans with 225 million of the um, viewers tuning in live over season nine. 
This took it past NASCAR to become the fourth largest motorsport series, with Germany and the USA being the fastest growing markets by fan base, up 45% and 30% respectively. More than 225 million viewers watched Formula E, as we said, live during season nine, up 4% on the previous season. China and the USA, plus new race markets in Brazil, India and South Africa, also significant increases in live race viewers. What do you think is making Formula E so popular at the moment? It's doing what it promised it would do with new regulations. Closer racing and new venues, kind of rotating calendar. There's always a few of the same on there, but there's a few new ones every year, more or less. They're not afraid to try it out. They keep changing the format a little bit here and there, doing tweaks. And you've actually got a battle for the championship, which up until like the final three, four races was pretty wide open. And even then it still went down to the second to last race, essentially. Um, and it's just really good racing. I think as well, it probably also comes down to accessibility. You, It's much, mm. a lot more people a Formula E race because it's so much more cheaper. I mean, and you can see free practice qualifying and a race all in one day it cost me 99 pound and it also cost me 99 pound last year so it hasn't gone up in price at all um and as well you can also go watch formula e testing in valencia on the 27th of october and guess how much it is to enter free probably 10 euros Five euros. And with that, if you do it early enough, you can get a pit lane walk, driver autographs. That's not too shabby. I mean, you've got to bear that in mind against, I think Silverstone just released the ticket prices for the 2024 British Grand Prix, and they are extortionate with considering what you don't get. Essentially, you do not get a great deal of track action going along to an F1 weekend. I think that's the same. Also, trying to buy a ticket, though. Uh, no, I haven't bothered buying Silverstone tickets this year. I've got Budapest tickets lined up instead because they were about a third of the price and I get a holiday out of it. Um, but yeah, you've got when you look at what Formula E can offer you across a race weekend, both action-wise and against the cost outlay, it is two-thirds the price for and three times the fun. And equally, the physical accessibility of it, if someone tells you, go and get to Silverstone, oh, by the way, you can't drive, you're scuppered. There is no public transport to it. You're lucky if they're running a bus from nearby Toaster or Northampton to get you to the circuit, um, or you have to pay extortionate amounts to be privately helicoptered in because that's great for the environment. Whereas if you compare it to, say, the London Epre or the Cape Town Epre or the New York Epre or the Rome Epre, they're all in major cities where you can simply get on some public transport, which is cheap and relatively efficient and relatively affordable for most people. So as a series to actually get to and physically enjoy, it is steps ahead of Formula One, which bar Monaco and nope, just Monaco. Um, oh, Azerbaijan, probably. Or do we have any other like Melbourne to a certain extent? Uh, Canada, Canada uh, is kind of limited when it comes to well, Las Vegas as well, I guess. Uh, it's kind of limited to actually getting to the circuit if you don't drive, or yeah. Well Although, ironically, both the times that I've gone to Formula E, there's been train strikes, so we have not been able to get public transport. But I will That's add... a very British problem. Yeah. Within um, 
And I say as well that I paid £99. Both those times, it was on the start-finish straight. I had, and I could also see the whole entire pit lane in front of me as well. So I could constantly see what was going on. I was right by the action to try and, I I don't even want to think about how much that is to do for Formula One, be down the start-finish straight, being able to look through the pits. The podcast that does its research live. Here we go. Um, do, 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 do. Book now. Tickets on sale. Let's see. Okay. Open guesses for a four-day general admission weekend. Or if, yeah, this will be a four-day general admission weekend for Silverstone. So it gives you Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, no, £409. So it's £100 okay, per day. But that is general admission and uh, no grandstand roving. And I think you don't get uh, grandstands selected for that. Uh, GA Plus gives you a certified grandstand um, for some of the days is 450 quid. Reserved grandstands start at 779. If you want to be on the start-finish straight, the Hamilton straight, 879 pounds. Um, and then if, you, yeah, if you're picking grandstands, it's anywhere from 450 quid right up to well into the 700s. Um, yeah, Hamilton straight, 799. Club corner, 799. Um, that's for general admissions. Let's see if you wanted to do a Sunday. I should think there was probably something laughably expensive. There are probably, oh no, all the big parties have already sold out. Basically, it's extortion. There probably would have been something that's 1500. And the fact of the matter is that if you, that's for one person. So, and not factoring in account that you're going to have to stay in a hotel and. Yeah, unless, like me, you happen to live about an hour from Silverstone, it's a bit of a faff to get to. So, you've got to factor in your petrol driving there, uh, a £60 park ticket to park your car, and then obviously all of your sort of extortionate food and drink while you're there. And then, if you have had to travel there, either your campsite costs or a hotel nearby, which will also be very expensive. I say, yeah, go watch Formula E, much more affordable. Um, Last bit of news, though, we've got the 2024 Indy Net schedule that's been released. And unsurprisingly, a bit like Formula 2 and Formula 3, it's more or less following IndyCar as it makes its way across America. There's 14 races scheduled for next year. I'll run through them very quickly, um, basically starting March, finishing in September. So starting off with IndyCar and finishing off with IndyCar as well. So we're going to be in St. Petersburg, then Barber Motorsports Park. Indy Motor Speedway twice, then Detroit, Road America, the WeatherTech Raceway at Laguna Seca, do that twice, then Middle House Sports Course, Iowa Speedway, Worldwide Technology Raceway, Portland International Raceway, very nice circuit, underrated, I think. Then we're going for the Milwaukee Mile on, on August the 31st, and then finishing off in the streets of Nashville, which is quite good because I like the fact that uh, they follow suit with F1, doing that with a feed series, well, at least for Formula 2, that's they at least start and end together so that you have a properly like season starting at the same time and ending at the same time. It's quite nice. And Indy Next has turned into quite a fun series to watch, especially with with Jamie Chadwick there. Yeah, it's it's proven to be an enjoyable series to sort of follow along this year. And it's had some good racing to it for certain. And equally, I like the fact that it very much sort of strictly follows the indie calendar and matches up to it nicely and again they picked out a good mix of circuits on there they don't have any of the big bowls but they are 
incredible. I think Iowa Speedway, are they doing the bowl for that one or is that going to be the street circuit within it? It varies, I think. So I'm not sure if they've been specific on that yet. I'm not that well-versed on that one. I'm very much uh, watching the highlights for Indy Next at the moment and just enjoying it as it comes. But regardless, it is a it is, it's a great little series and um, I'm looking forward to following it again next year. That's all we have time for on this week's episode. Join us again soon where we'll be pre- previewing the Qatar Grand Prix and any other news we hoover up, but I doubt it because we're doing these back to back. But anyway, make sure you've liked, subscribed and got notifications turned on so you do not miss anything. Jesse, where can the people find you? Uh, people can find me on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok as at Jesse on Cars and you can find me writing for Classic Car Weekly. I can't remember what on earth we've got out in the latest issue that you can pick up on Shop Shelves but I can show you it's good. No, I can, t- can remind you actually we've got the latest updates from my MG Midget going out and about so it's got its stories of Silverstone and Goodwood Revival in there so that's worth buying to, to read all about Bridget the Midget. Timo? You can find me in all the usual spots. So that would be Is It Fast on the Curbs, the Nitro RX podcast, Paddock Sorority, and Instagram. There's always something new and at least one or two of those each and every week. Ellie May, what about yourself? You can find me over on our Instagram page where I will be doing our graphics or over on our TikTok account. <laughs>